Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode will be our case study episode on this series on blockchain technology. And for our case study, I'm going to do two, actually, and it kind of mirrors the past few episodes where I'm going to start off with one on a cryptocurrency, and that would be PIVX. And then the second case study will be on more of a platform that utilizes blockchain technology in a different way. And that one will be on Cardano. Both of these projects are definitely in my probably top 10, if not top five blockchain projects that are out there as far as my favorites are concerned. And I think they will provide good specific examples of blockchain technology projects that are currently being developed and also currently being used. I am going to add a little bit at the end after doing those two case studies on security and a specific example of basically what happens if you pass away or something happens to you, what happens to your digital assets and what do you need to do to prepare for such an event and to make sure that all of your assets are secure in general. So I'll do a brief example of that type of scenario and a short case study on that as well. I would like to put in an announcement at this point before I get into the podcast episode itself, and I will be brief. It's basically just that I will be releasing two episodes this coming week, so look out for the next episode that will be a preview of Season 2, and it'll also be a request for input and feedback. I am going to basically present what Season 2 is going to be about and some of the things that I'm thinking about including, and also some options that that I am unsure which route I'm going to take and if I will include some extra stuff or not. So I really need you to listen to that. I need you to look out for it. And I need you to contact me, send me an email or comment on the website or send me a message on Twitter or whatever the case may be, whatever's convenient for you. But I do need to know your opinions. I need to know what you would like to hear so that I can cater to you and make sure that season two and anything before that and during that that I may want to add is something that you would be interested in and meets your desires. So please keep an eye out for that. That'll be coming very soon. And please listen to that and get back with me. So let's go ahead and just start off here with the PIVX project. So PIVX stands for Private Instant Verified Transactions, and it is a cryptocurrency project that is the main purpose of PIVX. I'm going to read the PIVX manifesto to give you an idea of at least what they say about themselves. It says, and I quote, Privacy is non-negotiable. It's a basic human right. Freedom is everything. Technology is advancing. Governance must also. Privacy allows the freedom to share what you wish with everyone, but also the freedom to restrict who sees your information. We believe this is each person's choice. Governance is used to further objectives and fund development. The DAOs are untouchable. Join us when you like, why you like, and for as long as you like. Let's explore all the options together. You are important to us. It's time we harnessed your full potential. 
So at this point, I'm just going to assume that you've listened to the previous few episodes or you are at least well-steeped in blockchain technology yourself, and you already know what a DAO is, you know what cryptocurrencies are, you know what blockchain technology is, you know proof-of-stake versus proof-of-work. I'm just going to assume all this stuff because you kind of need to know it, and I've already covered it, so I'm not going over it again. So let's just start off with the background of PIVX. So technically, PIVX if you trace back its origins all the way, would originally start with Bitcoin. And then you had a fork of that Litecoin. A fork of that was Dash, where you had masternodes and Instasend and a DAO added all those things that PIVX ended up adopting. And so PIVX forked off of Dash, but at that point in time, it took the name Darknet and then later did a name change to PIVX. And it took all those things. It also added the zero coin privacy protocol, and then it created a lot of its own original aspects as well. You had an original proof-of-stake consensus algorithm that allowed for private staking, and it was the first of its kind. Another first for PIVX was that it was the first coin that was a proof-of-stake coin that adopted the zero-coin protocol, which is their privacy protocol. So that was another first. And it has quite a few other things like a dynamic coin supply, The treasury model is a little different than others and a few things like that. So let me start off with the dynamic coin supply. This is one of the more original aspects of the PIVX project and that cryptocurrency. So the thing about this is that it actually is inflationary. It's inflationary intentionally. And so this is very different than Bitcoin that has a capped supply and it is deflationary. The idea behind this is that an actual currency that people use for everyday transactions, it's just really not practical for that to be deflationary. And I've covered deflation and inflation in previous episodes, so hopefully you're up to date and I don't have to explain that argument to its full extent. But to move on, the point is that the PIVX team believed that it was best to have a small inflation rate and use that to its advantage for funding things and organizing the governance and that type of thing. So the way it works is that the inflation is capped at 4%, but that is with quite a few caveats. So even though technically the inflation rate could be 4%, which is on the high end, definitely, the reality is that it actually could be much lower and it could even go negative and be deflationary at times, depending on the activity on the network. So to begin with, you have transaction fees for doing transactions on the PIVX network. It's similar to many other cryptocurrencies in that sense. And so if I am sending, let's say, 20 PIV to my friend Bob, then I will pay a very small transaction fee to push that transaction through the network. The difference with PIVX is that this transaction fee is then burned. And so what that means is it's basically just eliminated. It's cut out of the coin supply and destroyed, never to return again. 
So what's happening is the supply, the money supply of PIVX is actually going down every time a transaction occurs. There is another time when this technique is used, and that is with the treasury model. So the PIVX project has a DAO, and within that there is a treasury to fund development and things like that, and I'll talk about that in a little while. But in the context of inflation and burning, the core aspect related to this is that any unused funds in the treasury also get burned. So after a given period of time, if there are any funds still left that haven't been distributed and voted on to go to certain projects or certain development or whatever the case may be, then the remaining funds will be burned. So you can see that although there is inflation that's occurring, there's also some deflationary pressure occurring just from this burning that happens, the destruction of coins and the lowering of the coin supply through these two different means of burning transaction fees and burning leftover treasury funds. So that's one deflationary pressure. Um, the other aspect is that the inflation that occurs it happens through increasing the coin supply. So new coins are created and distributed, and that is where the inflation comes from. But the key is where this inflation goes. So some of the inflation goes to the treasury, and that is used to fund projects. And again, we'll talk about that in a little while, but that's basically an investment into the project itself and could potentially and should potentially cause the value of the coin to increase as the project gets more and more secure with more and more features and that kind of stuff. So although that money is going somewhere besides back to the people holding the PIVX coins, it is actually more of an investment, which should, in theory, increase the value, which should also put other pressures that are the opposite of the pressures that are put on the coin through the inflation that is created. Now, the rest of the inflation goes to the users who stake. So pretty much anybody that has any PIV, which is the PIVX currency, if you have PIV and you have it in your digital wallet, you have the ability to stake that. And we've talked about proof of stake before. I'm not going to get into that, but it's fairly simple with the wallet. You basically click a few buttons and all of a sudden you're staking. And what it will do is it will use some of your computer's processing power to process transactions. And in doing so, you will be rewarded by receiving some of the inflation that gets distributed. So the point to this is that even though, let's say I'm holding 100 PIV and there is some inflation that's happening, it's 4% inflation. Let's say that's the statistic there. Well, I might get 2% more coins just through the inflation while I am staking my PIV. And so all of a sudden for me, even though I lost 4% of the value of my PIV in my wallet, I actually gained 2% of that value back just by receiving the inflation. So even though other people that didn't receive this inflation handout may not get that advantage, I, as a user and participant, I am receiving this advantage. So the inflation rate to me as a user and participant is actually only 2%. Now, when you add in the burned transaction fees and you add in burned treasury funds, and you add in an increased value of my PIV from the investments through the treasury and the added features and the project that keeps on continuing, then 
my value in my wallet actually may go up, even though technically there is inflation of the supply of coins. So even though you have the inflation, which usually means value goes down, in this project, the way it's set up, potentially value could still go up, even with this inflation. Another aspect here is that as adoption grows and more and more people are using the PIVX platform and using PIV in transactions, that means that there are more transactions that are happening. And as transaction volume goes up, whether it be through just trading or through organic growth or PIV being accepted as a payment in some big retailer, whatever the reason, if transaction volume goes up, then that means there are more transaction fees that are being accrued, which means that there is more PIV being burned, which means there is a greater deflationary pressure. And as the deflationary pressure kicks in and value goes up, then that actually encourages more people to hold PIV. And so it's kind of a cool circle that they've got going on there with the economics behind the coin supply. And that's what they refer to as the dynamic coin supply. As I'm sure you've thought about, well, what about the people that don't stake? What about people that just have some PIV in their wallets? Aren't they affected by the inflation? And the answer is yes. But the point is that more than likely, if you have a fairly large amount of PIV or any substantial amount to you in any way, you should be staking it. And that's very easy to do. They're working on cold staking, which I'll talk about later. But the point is that it's not hard to do. It doesn't require a lot of work. So pretty much anybody that has a supply of PIV that they are holding onto and not planning on spending immediately will probably be staking that and receiving the benefits there. So the only people that are generally going to be holding PIV and not receiving the inflation are people that are holding it very temporarily. So maybe they received some for a transaction and then they're just immediately converting it to dollars. Or maybe they just purchased some PIV and they purchased it in order to make a transaction with somebody else. Or they are receiving transactions on a regular basis, they're receiving PIV and they are immediately spending it when they receive it or they're holding onto it for a day and then spending it, whatever the case may be. The point is that you don't have the accumulated effects of inflation that you have on a normal currency if you are only holding that currency for a very short period of time. So if you are holding 100 PIV and you hold it for five years and you are actually realizing a, let's say, 4% inflation rate, then that will bring the value of your PIV down a decent bit. However, if you're staking that amount, then you might not experience any inflation at all. And if you do, it'll probably be minimal. However, if you have 100 PIV that you're only holding on to for one week or one day, then you're only going to actually be realizing a tiny fraction of the effect of inflation on the total coin supply overall. And so that's not really going to matter much to you. That's so minuscule, it really doesn't matter. And so the point is that the people that are actually affected negatively by the inflation aren't really affected all that negatively. It works out pretty well. And the people that would be affected very negatively, they are kind of saved by the way the system is set up. So let's move on to an aspect that I mentioned before that PIVX got from the Dash currency, and that would be masternodes. So the idea is that you have people that are willing to put up more investment and in exchange, they get more control and they add more features for the network. So the way it works is that 
anyone, if they are willing to pay for it, can buy a master node. And what a master node does is it acts a lot like another node, like when you stake on your wallet, it's similar to that, but you are a bigger provider for this service. You're handling more transactions and more important transactions, and you are kind of a top dog. And this is what enables the very fast, nearly instant transactions that the PIVX network can handle and process. But in order to be a master node, you do have to meet a few requirements. They are not very extreme. The hardware requirements fairly low, just about any internet connection works. But there are some to make sure that the master node is one that will be reliable and can be counted on and that kind of stuff. So if you pay for it and you meet all these requirements, then you can do it. And in exchange, you receive payment for it, just like anyone else would if they are staking in their normal wallet. And so what this enables is that it sets up a network of these special nodes that are very reliable and that have proven themselves and have a lot more currency at stake, so they are much more trustworthy, and they can be used for specific transactions that really need to go through the network very quickly. So if I need a near instantaneous transaction, then I can basically go straight to the master nodes, get it verified immediately, and all of a sudden I'm done. It's verified. It's nearly instant. And this can be done because it's going straight to master nodes, which is a smaller number, instead of going through the completely decentralized node system through more common users. Now, you should know that a normal PIVX transaction can be verified in a matter of seconds, so it's not like it's a major problem for the network anyway. But if you are, say, buying a coffee at Starbucks, you don't want to stand there for 30 seconds waiting for your transaction to get verified. That kind of sucks. Even when you're using a card with a chip in it and you stick it in, some places it might take 10 seconds, and even that feels like a long time. So having a nearly instant transaction really is beneficial and is needed for some applications. And the extra fee that you pay for this is actually very small. It doesn't cost a whole lot extra, and you can get the nearly instantaneous transaction. So that is an added feature that really makes it a very useful currency in this regard. The next aspect I wanted to talk about was the DAO. And the DAO is very important. It basically is the whole governance model for the project. I've talked about DAOs before, so I'm not going to get into them much again. As a reminder, it's a decentralized autonomous organization. But the way the DAO works with the PIVX project is that you have a few different systems that are working in parallel. So number one, you have proposals. And this is something that is open to anyone. If someone wants to submit a proposal for the network, then they're welcome to do so. Many of the proposals include things like marketing strategies or creating a tutorial for using PIVX or for starting a masternode, or some of it might be for giving developers money or doing a bug bounty or lots of different things like this and anyone can submit a proposal then these proposals are currently voted on by the masternode owners so anyone that has a masternode gets to vote on all these proposals and basically gets to steer the project for where it's going to go and how the treasury funds are allocated 
So that's the way it's set up now, but actually in the works is an expansion of the voting to include all stakers. So it won't just be the masternode owners, it will now be all stakers, and that should be released in the relatively near future as of this recording at least. And this is something that was voted on by the masternode. So they actually voted to give up some of their power and control for what in their minds was the good of the network. So that's pretty cool. Usually you don't hear about governments limiting their own power. They usually say they're going to, but again, we've talked about that a lot before. Go back and listen to the episode on the Constitution, and that gives you a very good example of this. So the point is that you have proposals, anyone can submit them, then they're voted on by masternodes or in the future all stakers, and this money that pays out for these proposals comes from the treasury. Now, the treasury currently is just a single unit, and it handles all proposals and all payments. However, they are also working on changing this slightly, where the treasury will be broken up into three groups. The first group will be treasury governance, and this will be your general proposals. So basically all the things that I mentioned before, at least most of them, things like marketing plans or holding a bug bounty or something like this, these proposals, the majority of the proposals will be handled by this treasury governance segment of the treasury itself. The second area will be the manifesto governance section, and this will handle very high-level aspects of the project. So I read that manifesto at the very beginning, and everything on the PIVX project is oriented to fall into that manifesto and the goals and ideologies that are listed there. And so the manifesto governance section of the treasury will be handling changes related to those, the core goals of the project. So this will be probably very rare and possibly never actually have any proposals that go through here, but there's a place for that, and that will be a slightly different place than the general voting for most normal proposals. Now, there is a third segment of the treasury that will be the protocol governance section, and this will be dedicated strictly to the code, and that's everything that's basically in the background of the project. Now, with the protocol governance section, these will be zero-cost proposals, and there is an added feature where they can be vetoed by PIVX core developers. So the idea here is that if we want to change the code for the privacy protocol that underlies the ZPIV currency, which is the privacy currency aspect of the PIVX project, then that would be submitted to the protocol governance system. And it doesn't actually cost anything to choose what type of privacy protocol we want to use. Now, there will be costs in development and paying developers does get handled and that's something separate. But when we're talking about which way to go with the code and changes in the code and how that is steered, the protocol itself, then the zero cost aspects of this and these decisions will be handled under protocol governance. And again, we'll have the added feature of being able to be vetoed by those that would actually develop it and really know what they're doing. So the experts that are behind the project. And that's how that would work. So that's a high-level view of the at least core segments of the PIVX project in general. 
I want to mention now a setback that happened in April of 2018. And at this point in time, there was actually a flaw found in the cryptography that underlies the zero coin privacy protocol, which is what PIVX uses and what they used. So this was a pretty big problem. And so as soon as this hit, the PIVX team basically stopped any ZPIV transactions and that so the currency is split between PIV and ZPIV. PIV is their normal currency that is transparent and everybody can see those transactions. And ZPIV was their privacy coin. So you could convert PIV to ZPIV if you wanted to send a private transaction. And that's the way their privacy protocol worked. But now there was a problem found in the ZeroCoin protocol where it was no longer safe to use ZPIV and to even have it enabled. Now, luckily, they're working on an upgrade for the wallet. They found the issue very quickly, and it doesn't seem like it was really exploited on their platform. So damage was definitely mitigated. There were no major effects here. But all of a sudden, you have this privacy coin where privacy is one of the key features of their own self-written manifesto. All of a sudden, it doesn't have privacy, and they had to basically nix the whole privacy aspect of their coin. So it was a very big deal. Luckily for the project, in the background, they were already working on a new, unique privacy protocol that they wanted to have for their own project. They didn't want to use the ZeroCoin protocol forever. They wanted to have their own privacy protocol that they felt they could make even better than what currently existed out there on the market already. And so where we are now, at least as of this recording, they still have not figured out exactly what privacy protocol they are using and what that's going to look like, even though they're working on that in the background. That's not something that they have released the information for yet, but they will likely be using bulletproofs more than likely. And I've also talked about bulletproofs on another episode. So it's basically a way to shrink the size of the data transfer in a transaction to make that transaction fairly cheap and fairly quick to go through and it really helps with scalability and things like this and there is someone on the PIVX team that worked on creating bulletproofs so they have a lot of experience in their developer camp and so what's going on here is that they're developing their own original privacy protocol that will be using bulletproofs and other new technologies they are currently looking at all the other privacy protocols out there seeing what they want to include and what they don't and they are figuring this out behind the scenes there should be an announcement fairly soon after they launch the next version of the wallet the focus will then be on the privacy protocol and they'll work on getting that done now there have been other issues that have come up for the project in the past but this is the most recent and it's a pretty big deal because it's a privacy coin that no longer is private so that's a problem but like most cryptocurrency projects and blockchain projects in general the project is not done and it is definitely still in the development stages. So this is a fairly minor setback. The zero coin protocol wasn't even expected to be the permanent privacy protocol they were going to use anyway. And the team handled it very well. They contained the possibly detrimental effects that could have happened when this flaw was found and are working to basically continue on from here. 
So I'm going to move on to kind of what the future looks like and what they're working on now aside from that privacy aspect. So I mentioned the new wallet. They are working on the new 4.0 wallet, which should be releasing soon as of this recording in November of 2019. And this will have a totally new user interface. It will be very intuitive. It will have many options, but without looking clunky, it's supposed to be the latest and greatest thing. They are also building it with unique code on the QT framework, which will be one of the first done for a cryptocurrency project. And so they're very proud of this. And this is supposed to be a very good thing. However, I have not seen it yet. So we will see it does seem like that has a lot of potential. And that's a very good thing. The wallet was one of the biggest negatives for the project. In my opinion, the wallet works well, they have a digital wallet, I've used it, I've actually staked on it before. And it's fairly simple. But at the same time, it's just not all that pleasant. It's not always intuitive. Sometimes there's a few extra clicks you would have to do. And you know, at least in my opinion, it shouldn't have to be set up that way. And I, I personally at least had some issues with the wallet as far as how much I liked it and enjoyed using it. So this new wallet should be a very big deal. And that's supposed to address a lot of those complaints that many people had. So that's the very next thing that we'll be releasing. Then, like I said, you have the privacy protocol that will be finalized and will start to be developed as well. And they have other things that are in the works. I had mentioned cold staking. So the idea here is that you basically delegate your coins that you want to stake to somebody else and their computer processing power is being used, not yours. So your computer can be completely offline. You just just have a certain amount of coins locked up that somebody else basically is staking for you and you receive a small portion of the benefits from that. And so you can have all of your funds being staked whether your computer is on or not. So that's a pretty cool thing that really opens the door for basically anybody to be staking in some form or fashion, which increases decentralization and inclusiveness and is overall a good thing. Another thing they're working on is the Dandelion protocol, and this basically makes your IP address untraceable. Another feature they're working on will be multi-sig wallets, where you can have a wallet that requires multiple different inputs in order to unlock it or to complete a transaction. So I can store one of those inputs myself and then give another to someone else that I trust. And that way, if I get mugged and someone steals all my information, they still can't access my wallet. And there are many other reasons why you'd want to use a multi-sig wallet, but that's just a brief overview of what it is as I move on to the next thing. And that would be Trezor support for Masternode Collateral which Trezor is a hardware device where you can store your cryptocurrency on it. And the idea would be that you can do this for the collateral that you need to put up in order to have a masternode. So that's pretty cool. And in general, they are working on integrating Trezor and Ledger on mobile and desktop wallets. So Ledger is also another hardware wallet where you can store your cryptocurrency on a physical device that is not connected to the internet or any computers for an added layer of security. And they're working on an integration between those and the mobile and desktop wallets. They're also working on light wallets and light nodes where you won't have to download the entire blockchain record in order to participate like you do now. Instead, there will be ways of running a 
wallet and running a node that are much lighter or much smaller and require a lot less memory and time so that more people will be able to use these features. Another thing they're working on integrating would be the BIP44 and BIP39 Bitcoin improvement proposals. And let's start with BIP44. So what this does is it basically makes a standard for deriving many keys for different users from a single mnemonic seed. And so I... I'm not really going to get into all the technicalities here because it there's no point to it in this format. But basically, you have a master code in a sense, this single mnemonic seed that unlocks all of your funds and access to your whole wallet. But what you can do is create what they call child keys. You can create keys off of this that independently have different access to things. And there can even be child keys off of those. So these would be grandchild keys. And the keys is just like a private key. It's a passphrase or a group of letters and numbers, whatever the case may be. And so it basically just adds for more features and more ways of organizing and securing your wallet and your funds and things like this. When you get to BIP39, the idea is that it adds passphrase protecting for a seed phrase. And again, I'm not going to get into the technicalities of that. If you're interested, go look it up and do some research so you can understand it better than I could explain it in 30 seconds. So that kind of wraps up all the major things that are on the roadmap for the PIVX project and what they're working on. A few other aspects of the PIVX project as a whole would be the other factors here. So you have the DAO, you have the Treasury, you've got the dynamic coin supply and inflation, you've got the master nodes, you've got all these different things. You have the roadmap, all these different things are working on in the background. You also have PIVX ambassadors, and these are people that are going around basically spreading the word about PIVX and trying to increase adoption and educate people and that kind of stuff. And they are funded by the proposal and treasury mechanisms on the PIVX project. You also have the PIVX Foundation, which is a fairly new charitable entity to ensure ongoing development and business adoption, according to the website. And this is one that was also created through a proposal and funded through the treasury as well. Some other interesting things that are related to PIVX but not being worked on by the core PIVX project would be Vendable and Exobit. So Vendable is going to be a marketplace and digital economy that will use the PIVX currency, among others. So this will be an integrated payment platform that will allow merchants to accept multiple cryptocurrencies, including PIVX, of course, as well as Bitcoin and IOP and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash. And it will at least the way the website describes it, provide a fast and easy and simple way for merchants to accept these cryptocurrencies. It will expose them to the millions of users that are using these different currencies as well. It also is designed to be a platform that will be based on a decentralized governance model that will continue to build and develop and expand as they grow their presence in this digital economy. So that's being developed now. The name of that again was Vendable. 
The next example is the Exobit platform, and this is in testing right now, so it's close to being done and released, and it will be a multi-coin wallet that will start with Bitcoin and PIVX. So you'll be able to hold multiple cryptocurrencies within this one wallet, and it will also be a point-of-sale system. It will be a portfolio tracker, and it can accommodate doing atomic swaps. So let's talk about each one of these. You've got a multi-coin wallet. We know what a digital wallet is, and you just store multiple coins in it. That's pretty basic. A point-of-sale system where you can actually send and receive payments instantly through this wallet, and that will be a convenient way of paying for things and buying things, things like that. There will also be portfolio tracking. So if you own multiple cryptocurrency coins and you're holding them more as an investment or you're holding them for any other reason and you just want to know how the value is changing according to any fiat pair maybe that you're concerned with. Maybe how many dollars is my Bitcoin worth and how does that change over time? And can you add that with my Bitcoin Cash, with my PIVX, with whatever other cryptocurrencies end up being enabled on this multi-coin wallet? And it'll track all that stuff and give you all the stats for it. The final thing is atomic swaps, which basically allows for trading between these different cryptocurrencies without actually going through an exchange. It basically is a decentralized exchange where you can just swap your Bitcoin for PIVX automatically. You don't have to go to an exchange, send your PIV from your digital wallet to that exchange, then use your PIV to buy Bitcoin with it. Then you take that Bitcoin and you send that to your Bitcoin wallet. You don't have to do all this stuff. Within the Exobit wallet, you basically just click a few buttons and you can trade your PIVX for Bitcoin. You can just turn one into the other, and that's called an atomic swap. So that's another project with a lot of potential that looks really interesting that's being developed and tested currently right now. So we'll see how that looks when it comes out. But that wraps up my case study on the PIVX project. I hope that was enjoyable and interesting to you and should give a good example of a specific project that's working on a cryptocurrency using blockchain technology and give you a more detailed look at how these projects operate and what's all involved and that type of thing to go a little deeper into the things that we've been talking about in the previous few episodes. So the next case study that I want to cover will be the Cardano project. And I will cover it roughly the same way as I did PIVX. I'll kind of go through the things that stand out and what set it apart and what it is, what it does, how it works, that type of thing. So let's just go ahead and get started here. I'll start by making a reference back to someone I mentioned in a previous episode, and that would be Charles Hoskinson. If you remember, he was part of the Ethereum project early on, but left in the early stages and started his own thing. So Charles Hoskinson started Cardano, and he also founded IOHK, which is a group that I'll talk about later on in this episode. But to begin with, with Cardano, he refers to Cardano as a third-generation blockchain. So by his figuring, at least, the first generation was all about creating decentralized money. And this was Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies like that, which was a very big deal. I've talked about Bitcoin on this podcast before and talked about cryptocurrencies and gone over all the reasons why this is a very big deal and this technology has a lot of potential. 
But then there was a second generation of blockchains, and that would be blockchains that can handle contracts and customizable transactions. They can handle a little more and do more, and this would be something like Ethereum, where you not only have decentralized money, you have an entire decentralized platform that can run something like a smart contract and some of the other stuff that I, again, have talked about on a previous episode. So then we come to the third generation blockchain, and this is what Charles refers to Cardano as. And that would be a blockchain that has all these things. It has the ability for decentralized money, it has the ability to run smart contracts and customizable transactions, but it also handles three of the main problems that plague these types of projects, and that would be scalability, interoperability, and sustainability. I'll talk about what these three things have to do with modern blockchain platforms and how Cardano addresses these in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about some of the other major aspects of Cardano and what the ideology is behind the project. So to begin with, it's a very academic approach to technology and to building out a blockchain and a platform. What they do is they publish academic papers, they get them peer-reviewed, and this is done by people that are leaders in the field of cryptography and fields of this nature related to the different aspects that each paper is addressing. And they get that peer-reviewed by other people, and they take that back and get the feedback, and they make sure that their theories are more than just theories, that they actually would potentially work and that they make sense, the logic behind them is sound, the mathematics behind it is sound, all this kind of stuff. And so they have all the experts go over this, and they do all this in a very organized manner. Everything they do is very highly organized and ran more like a business, which is different from most of the very decentralized projects out there that really just draw from the crowd, a lot of crowdsourcing, and they don't necessarily have the same structure that Cardano has, at least not in as organized as a way. And this does have its negatives as well as its positives, and I think you should know that if you've listened to the previous episodes. I've talked about why the decentralization and why the lack of organization can actually be a good thing for this type of project. But that's not the approach that Cardano has taken. So beyond their methodology, Cardano overall is a blockchain platform that is a proof-of-stake coin and is intended to handle just about anything that a blockchain platform could handle between cryptocurrencies to smart contracts to interoperability and scalability and the other issues I mentioned. Cardano is planning on handling all of these things, optimizing all of these things, and being the front runner in all of these different categories. The first provable, secure, proof-of-stake protocol was developed by Cardano, and that would be Aurora Boris is the name of it. They did write a peer-reviewed paper. It was passed along. It has now been considered provably secure to the same degree that proof-of-work is. And Cardano is the first blockchain project to actually go through this process. It doesn't necessarily mean that no other proof-of-stake protocol is provably secure or that others haven't done so since then or plan on intending to do so later. But Cardano is the first, and they have proved this, and 
this is the method that they went through, the peer review, the academic approach, very organized, and they have done so. So let's get on to the three things that I mentioned earlier as far as what Charles Hoskinson refers to a third-generation platform as being, and that would be scalable, interoperable, and sustainable. So let's start off with scalable, scalability. This is something that many blockchains have been plagued with. Ethereum is a very good example. When dApps like CryptoKitties were released on Ethereum, there was just so much traffic on the network that it couldn't really handle it. Things got very slow and transactions got very expensive. The same thing happened with Bitcoin when you had a huge run up in price and the price went from around $2,000 all the way up to around $20,000 over the period of a few months. And there was just so many people that wanted to get a hold of Bitcoin. There was so much demand and people were doing so much traffic and so many transactions at one time that it took a long time to get transactions confirmed. And the price for transactions went basically through the roof compared to what it was before and after. And so different projects, even the top projects in the blockchain space, have really suffered from not being able to scale or operate at that type of scale. So Cardano is addressing this, and they say that they will be a completely scalable blockchain. What they want to do is lower the amount of data needed for storing the blockchain history. They feel like this is very important and this is needed. If you have to still store the entire history of the entire blockchain, every transaction, every record, then there's no way to really scale that and have that happen by every node on the network. That's just too much. They want to be able to verify without needing the whole history. So some of the options for that would be partitioning and side chains where you have different chains that are fact-checking different aspects and different sections of the blockchain and some way of scaling down the sides of the data that's needed to store to still prove that you are continuing the original chain and that your transactions are legitimate and that kind of thing. The next aspect that Cardano is really working on is interoperability. So the idea is that right now, most protocols are very isolated. And when you have an isolated protocol, that gives a lot of power to the on and off ramps. So for example, if you have to exchange your dollars for Bitcoin, Bitcoin doesn't operate with the banking world. You can't just do that through your bank account normally. That's, it doesn't work that way. You have to go through an exchange. You've got to use an exchange that will exchange your fiat money, your dollars for Bitcoin. But the problem is that that's a lot of power to put in the hands of an exchange. That's also a lot of risk. What if the exchange gets hacked? This has happened actually many times. This is not an issue, however, if the blockchain itself can interoperate with these legacy systems. The same is true if the blockchain can operate with another blockchain as well. You'd no longer have to go through an exchange in order to deal with these two different blockchains. And that's also just very inefficient. The Cardano team believes that there will be many different blockchains out there. There'll be many different projects out there that they're going to specialize in different areas and that that's something that will happen and should happen. But in order to make that ecosystem work together, 
these blockchains have to work together and they have to be able to operate together and interoperate. And that really needs to happen. There needs to be smooth transitionings between blockchains. And there are other projects that are working on this, like Cosmos and Polkadot and others like that. But Cardano does have plans on doing this. And not only with these other blockchains working together, but they also plan on having options to connect to legacy systems. In order to do this, they feel like they need to have options for metadata, which would be basically just more data about transactions and the money and that kind of stuff. They will need to work on attribution and be able to figure out where the money's coming from, where it's going, that kind of stuff. And then finally, compliance. There are many different compliance regulations in many different places in order to work with fiat systems and legacy systems that are in existence today that are outside of the blockchain world. And Cardano believes that they can do this and they can make an option for including all this data so that the Cardano currency, which is called ADA, can be used with fiat systems and legacy systems. And then, like I mentioned, the plan is to also have the Cardano blockchain connect with other crypto chains without needing the entire chains stored. So similarly to what they're trying to do with scalability, they want to be able to verify that transactions are legitimate and that the blockchain is in a correct state and it's not some fork or some change. They wanna be able to verify all these things without having to store the entire chain for every blockchain. Because if you want to interoperate with other blockchains, then right now that's what you have to do. You have to store a copy of all those other blockchains that you want to interoperate with and then use that as your verification layer. However, the Cardano team believes that they can and believe that they need to be able to verify without having to store the entire chain, but still be able to verify that the blockchain is correct and the transaction is verified and that kind of stuff. So that's what they're working on for the interoperability side of things. The final aspect that a third generation blockchain has is sustainability. So what Cardano has done is fairly similar to PIVX and some of the other projects that have a DAO, and they have split different functions up for different groups and done so in a fairly decentralized way. So what they do is they have all of their funding handled by a treasury that is funded through inflation. So similar to PIVX, it is decentralized, and the plan is to be able to submit proposals and to vote. And with this voting, they are planning on doing what's called liquid democracy. Now, I've mentioned liquid democracy on previous episodes, but I'll just give a quick recap here. This is where everyone gets one vote, but that vote is liquid in the sense that it can flow to other people if you desire it. So if I want my votes to all go to this one person that I think is very familiar with the system and I really trust him, maybe Charles Hoskinson's. Maybe I want him to get all my votes and I can do that. I can pass my votes on to him. Or maybe I generally want to keep my votes myself and I want to vote on things, but there's this one thing that I really don't know anything about. So I'll pass my vote to him on that one thing, but I'll keep my others. And you can do anything in between there. 
The idea is that it's liquid and it's not permanent. You don't have a permanent representative. You don't have a representative at all unless you want one. And you have the option to participate in a direct democracy if you so choose. So that's the idea behind a liquid democracy. And that's how they are going to be handling the voting for proposals. Now, there is also an incentivized treasury model that works on making sure that proposals will get voted on in a trustworthy way and that legitimate and high quality proposals will actually pass and that kind of stuff. Now, I say all this in the sense of will be and should be and they plan on. I use these phrases because Cardano is still very much in the works. It is still very much being developed. They are not as far along as Ethereum, for example, at least in the overall scheme of the project. Now, the Cardano team may have done more than the Ethereum team, although I don't necessarily believe that's true. But the Ethereum team has a different plan. They're going about it a different way. They're doing a different thing. And Cardano is, you know, obviously doing something different as well. And so that's something that's still very much being developed. They do have a blockchain and they do have their currency, their cryptocurrency ADA that's out there. They can handle transactions. And like I said, they have produced many different peer-reviewed papers, such as the staking protocol or Boris and some other things like that, where they have proven that they are developing very solid technology and state-of-the-art stuff that is above pretty much every other project out there. So they're doing a lot, but they don't have all of these things released yet. They don't have the governance aspect released yet. They don't even have the staking aspect released yet. They just released the testnet as of this recording for Shelly, and I'll talk about Shelly in a little bit. That's the stage, the next stage of the blockchain. And so they're still working on it. They're still in the development stage. But continuing on, the other thing they need to work on for sustainability is upgradability. So I talked about this in relation to Bitcoin and the issues with upgrading the Bitcoin system, how it's a slow process and it's a difficult process and you have to get everybody on board unanimously, people that don't know each other, that are not connected, and it's quite a process. And I talked about the positives associated with that, but there obviously are also many negatives. So with the Cardano program, they plan on handling upgradability in a way that basically the protocol is something that acts as a constitution with options for amendments. And that's the analogy that is used usually in describing this. So they go through voting and different processes to add basically amendments to the Constitution or minor changes in the protocol itself. And these would be the upgrades. So they have a system in place for dealing with this, for handling upgrades, for voting on them, and that kind of stuff. And they have those processes laid out. So overall, that's the treasury aspect of Cardano and the upgrading and proposals and voting and that kind of stuff. But if you look from a more broad perspective, the Cardano project overall is basically split into three parts. You have IOHK, which works on the development side of things. You've got the Cardano Foundation for supervising development and promoting. And then you have Emergo, which is to drive commercial adoption. So to give you a brief overview of these three areas, 
IOHK is an actual organization that the CEO is Charles Hoskinson. He runs the organization, and what they do is development for blockchains. They don't just work on Cardano, although Cardano is probably what they're most well-known for, but they also work on projects such as Ethereum Classic and Horizon, which I've mentioned both of those on the podcast before, among other projects that they're working on. They're currently developing something called Scorex, which is made to be a modular architecture to build blockchains by choosing consensus protocols, transactional structures, and network infrastructure. So you basically choose what you want out of all these different things, out of many different options, and you build your own blockchain, your custom blockchain, out of all these different options. IOHK is also working on RS Coin, which is a framework for central banks and a way to handle their transactions, so definitely in the legacy world. And they've got other projects they're working on. Some of them are very interesting, but the idea here that I hope you get is that it's a very professional company working on some pretty major projects, and they're pretty high up in the realm of development for blockchains. And this is the company that has been hired and under contract to work on the Cardano platform. And when their contract runs up, the Cardano community would have the ability to hire a different company if they so choose. But the way things look right now, IOHK has a pretty secure place in this development role. So moving on to the next aspect of Cardano, that would be the Cardano Foundation. And the Cardano Foundation is meant for supervising the development and for promoting the project. They have many different specific goals that they're supposed to work on. And this is the overall group that is part of the Cardano project itself that is basically steering the project. And that's what their role is. Then you have Emergo, which is a separate entity from these two groups, but is still part of the Cardano project exclusively. And what they do is they work on commercial adoption. They work kind of like a business incubator for projects that want to build on the Cardano blockchain. They work on development, they work on support and incubating commercial ventures, this kind of stuff. And that is the role that Emergo plays with the Cardano blockchain. So all three of these groups, IOHK, Cardano Foundation, and Emergo, all have their different roles, and they are all different roles, and they share responsibility, and they share power. So as I'm sure you can see, this is a lot more centralized and a lot more organized than many other blockchain projects out there, but it definitely has its pluses and its benefits. But even though it is more organized and more centralized, it still is something that splits up power between different groups, it splits up roles between different groups, and it can handle adversity because of this. To give an example, there was some controversy that came up near the end of 2018 that probably started with Charles Hoskinson expressing some concerns over some policy and funding decisions that had been made by the Cardano Foundation. And he raised up a few things that he thought might be some potential problems. Now, then there were other community members that were fairly high up in the Cardano community that agreed and had even more 
problems that they saw with the Cardano Foundation. And all of this kind of started to come to a head, and there was an open letter that was released that basically called for the Cardano Foundation to totally change their ways or have the people at the top resign. And that was that. And so this debate actually continued for a while. And in the end, the people that ran the Cardano Foundation did end up stepping down. So in between that time, the other two groups, IOHK and Emergo, stepped up and said that they would just pick up the slack. They said the Cardano Foundation isn't handling these roles that they're supposed to be handling. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So we will pick up the slack and we'll go ahead and do it, whether they're going to do it or not. We'll just leave them behind. They can either step up and fix things or they can continue doing nothing, but we are not going to let the project suffer because of it. And so they picked up the slack and really stepped in, which was good to see. And it was nice to see this aspect of decentralization actually work out. Now, at some point in time, whenever you have the governance system fully in place and liquid democracy fully working and all this stuff, there won't be so much power in the hands of three specific groups. Now, there still may be three groups or more groups or less groups. There may be some groups that are organized in a fairly centralized way similar to this, but the power and the control will likely mostly all be in the hands of the users and the people that are voting. So this type of situation could probably be handled a lot easier when it's just a matter of putting up a proposal and voting on it and then doing whatever the majority of the people say they want to do. So that's probably how they'll handle it in the future. But until then, you have these three groups that basically hold the majority of the power, and they have been able to operate, even through controversy like this, in a way that works well and doesn't allow the project to fall behind or suffer any major losses. So that was a specific example of controversy and a specific way of explaining how these three groups work and how that has actually realistically worked out um, over the time that they have been working on the Cardano project. Now, moving on, I had mentioned Shelley before. And so to expand on that, there is a roadmap that Cardano has, and it's broken up into five eras. Now, these five eras all have the, they have different things that they're focusing on. The first era was Byron, and that was a focus on wallets and a community and the structure overall of the blockchain. So they wanted to be able to have digital wallets where you could have the cryptocurrency ADA and have that actually work and do transactions. They wanted to build up a community of users and people that were engaged with the project. And they wanted to work on the overall structure of the blockchain and get all that stuff established and set up. Now, the second era of the Cardano roadmap is Shelly. And what Shelly is focused on will be staking, delegation, incentive systems, and decentralization. So this is the next stage, the next era in the Cardano project. And that is the one that I mentioned earlier that the testnet has been released as of this recording, but the official full-blown Shelly 
era has not come yet. It's still being worked on, it's still being tested, and there might be some changes and adjustments and stuff before that is finally released officially, but that is getting very close. And it's finally starting to implement the things that will really kick into gear the specifics that Cardano is really wanting to implement and what they're wanting to stand out for and what they want to accomplish. Things like staking and delegation, and I mentioned the incentive systems, And with all this, when you have all that, you have the ability to get more decentralized and not have to rely so much on these three groups. You don't have to rely so much with the processing power and processing transactions when you have the staking model established and the incentive systems established and all this kind of stuff. So that'll be really cool to see that implemented, but uh, hopefully you have realized here that this is just era two out of five. So Cardano has a long way to go. They have lofty ambitions and lofty goals, but it seems to be a project that's organized in such a way, and they have proven themselves to potentially be able to meet all of these aspirations and be able to become one of the top blockchains in the space and be able to handle all these things they want to be able to handle and truly live up to the idea of being a third-generation blockchain. I'd like to wrap up talking about Cardano by going over some of the ideologies that Cardano lives by and how they operate. So I had mentioned that they are very academic in their approach. They are academic-oriented. They deal with peer-reviewed papers that are analyzed by top universities. They go to international conferences. And again, they go to all the experts in the field and they get feedback, and they discuss these things, they debate these things, they present all these things, and they make sure that what they're developing and what they are putting out is completely verified, it is proven, it has been peer-reviewed and fact-checked and all this kind of stuff. It's not just one group that's doing it behind the scenes and releasing it and have maybe a bug bounty to make sure there's no bugs in it. That's not what they're doing. They are doing this with a very academic approach. Now, the next aspect of their approach to the blockchain is that they have a technical prototyping team. And what this team does is it makes sure that the theory is possible in the real world. So you have this prototyping team that will implement some of these theories that even though it's a peer-reviewed concept and it has been proven to theoretically be completely functional, they want to make sure that this is going to work in the real world the way it's supposed to. So they do work on that ahead of time and they have people dedicated to that. They also have technical specifications that they have created and they have published these and they have checked these to make sure, again, that everything in the background, everything going on behind the scenes is exactly the way it should be and will hold up, doesn't have holes in it, has been checked by everybody that would be the top people to check these types of things. And so they do this by having these technical specifications that they've created and published and checked that are the backdrop for these different aspects that they're implementing with their project. The next thing I wanted to mention was formal development methods. 
So what they do is they have rigorous mathematical techniques for testing that are used typically in high stakes applications in basically things other than the Cardano project. Usually you only do these types of mathematical techniques when you're dealing with things like avionics software or banking software, space flight, things like this, where it is very high stakes. And if there is a mistake, it's a very big deal. You cannot have mistakes. You will have a plane crash and hundreds of people die. That is not acceptable. And so what they do is they have rigorous mathematical techniques. They have formal development methods to make sure that everything they are doing, everything they're developing, all the software is something that will work and will work correctly and has been fully thought out, fully fleshed out. And so that is what Cardano implements for their blockchain because it is also something with very high stakes as well, at least as long as it gets the adoption that they plan on getting. The final thing to mention here would be functional programming languages. So Cardano is mainly sticking with Haskell for a programming language, but overall what they want to do is stick with functional languages. And what these do is they make sure that there is less error and they are easier to test and they're easier to verify. So when you have a functional programming language, it's not quite as complex, it's not quite as elaborate, there's not as much to it. In order to do things, you have to really boil it down to the core concepts and get that in a very concise way. And so when you do this, it forces you to basically state things as simply as possible and code them as simply as possible, but you still are able to do very complex things and program complex things and it, it might be a little more difficult to do that, but when you do, it is almost guaranteed to have at least less error, and it is definitely easier to test and to verify and make sure that the code will do what it's supposed to do. And so that's why they stick with Haskell and other functional programming languages. Now, before I wrap up here with this case study on Cardano, I wanted to get into some interesting things related to the platform, and that is the names that the Cardano project has chosen. So I found an article from Hacker Noon that goes over a lot of these things. So I'm going to basically briefly cover some of these names and where they come from. To begin with, you have Cardano. That comes from Gerolamo Cardano, who was an Italian mathematician, physicist, biologist, physician, chemist, astrologist, philosopher, writer, and gambler. During his lifetime, he wrote over 200 scientific works, and he was one of the key figures in the mathematical field of probability during the Renaissance. And so the Cardano project would like to be something that is similar to this polymath of the Renaissance, where it can handle many different things. It's interoperable, it's flexible, it has many different skill sets and many different niches that it fills, and so that's where the name comes from. Now, the next name would be ADA, and that's the name of the currency on the Cardano platform, and that comes from Ada Lovelace. She comes from the mid-1800s, and she was an English mathematician and writer that is known for being the first person to recognize that computers could be used for more than just calculations. Lovelace wrote some of the first algorithms to be used on a computer, and she was technically the first computer programmer. 
So that makes a lot of sense that you would name your currency after the first computer programmer when you have a digital currency. The next thing would be the first era in the blockchain Cardano blockchain project. That would be the Byron era. And that comes from Lord Byron. And he was from the late 1700s, the early 1800s. He was a British poet, a peer, a politician, and a leading figure in the Romantic movement. He is best known for works such as Don Juan. And he has many other very interesting connections that would fit well with other aspects of this podcast I'd covered in the past related to conspiracy and corruption, actually, and other philosophers and that kind of stuff. But we're not going into that here. Point is, that is who the first era is named after. Then the second era is named after Mary Shelley. She was an English author who is best known for writing Frankenstein, which you know what that is. It is the story of something that is non-existent, that is brought to life and able to act autonomously, kind of like the Cardano project is intended to do. The next stage is the Gogin stage, and this is after Joseph Gogin, who is someone that lived from 1941 to 2006. So this is a more recent person, and he was a computer scientist from the United States and focused mostly on algebraic semantics and formal verification. So that definitely fits in with the ideologies behind Cardano. Another interesting aspect is that apparently his work highly inspired Gregor Rousseau, who is a professor of computer science at the University of Illinois and CEO of Runtime Verification. And what this man did was develop the K framework. And the K framework is really interesting. I'd mentioned uh, talking about programming languages. Well, what the K framework does is it can formally verify the code of smart contracts. And they don't have to be written in a specific programming language because the programming languages, at least many of the top programming languages, are defined in the K framework. And it can basically translate from any programming language that is defined and be able to understand what the code is supposed to do and verify that it will do what it's supposed to do and that kind of stuff. So that's another little interesting side note there. The next era for the Cardano project is the Basho era. And Matsua Basho is someone that lived in the 1600s and was a famous Japanese poet that was mostly recognized as the greatest master of haiku. He produced very creative and efficient poetry, which is along the same lines that Cardano plans to emulate as well for its blockchain. The fifth and final era for the Cardano blockchain would be the era of Voltaire. Now, Voltaire is generally known as a philosopher from the Enlightenment period, and a lot of his writings and beliefs and political views fall right in line with Cardano's vision of the on-chain governance and liquid democracy and the decentralization that they plan to emulate. And so a lot of this fits in with a lot of what Voltaire had to say. The next name to identify is one that I have mentioned earlier in this specific episode, and that would be Ouroboros. Now, the Ouroboros is a symbol that depicts a serpent or a dragon eating its own tail. And it really comes from the ancient Greeks, 
but it also was in ancient Egyptian text as well. And it relates to Cardano in that it has this cyclical nature of the consensus mechanism, and that is what underlies the consensus mechanism of Ouroboros. The final two names to mention are also related to Greek mythology. The first would be Daedalus, and Daedalus is the name of the official Cardano wallet, and it refers to Daedalus from the Iliad by Homer who was the one that was employed by King Minos to develop the labyrinth, which is where the Minotaur was trapped, and that's where he lived. And so for Cardano, this is the name of the official wallet. And you also have a picture of a Minotaur with a labyrinth on its head that is the logo for Cardano, which refers to the complex cryptographic protocols that are used within the Cardano blockchain. So the final one would be Icarus. So in reference to the mythology, Icarus was Daedalus's son, and so that's a direct relationship between the full wallet Daedalus and the light wallet, the smaller version, the spawn of that being Icarus. Now, Icarus did not end up being the light wallet that officially is out now. That one actually is called Uroi, and that one came from IOHK and mainly Emergo, and they developed this light wallet as a Chrome extension, a browser extension, and it is using the same principles as the Icarus wallet was, and its name, Uroi, comes from the ancient Japanese samurai armor that was very ornate, took about a year to construct, and was very complex. And so that's where it gets its name, and that, again, is the light wallet, the light version of Daedalus that can be run. It's not a full node, but it is able to run transactions and process transactions. You can send and receive. You can do all the basic functions through this light wallet. Before wrapping up, there is one more kind of case study that I wanted to mention, and that is related to the security of cryptocurrencies and digital assets in general. And this comes from a listener who I know personally, and they are in the field of estate planning. And they came across some information regarding cryptocurrencies and estate planning. And so that's dealing with stuff whenever someone passes away, how are their assets distributed and how all that works in relation to a trust or a will and whatever. But the point of this information was that there can be a problem when it comes to digital assets because of the way the security is designed. As I've described before, in order to access a digital wallet, you have to have a private key and no one else can access it without that private key. Well, that can be a problem if you pass away and you are the only one with that private key or access to it. And so even if you pass away and you have it in your will that all of your assets go to, let's say, your firstborn son and... When you pass away, the will is carried out and all those assets are passed along to your son and they pass along legally your digital assets as well. Let's say you have five Bitcoin in a digital wallet. Well, the problem is that it doesn't really matter what the government says or what the courts say or what your will says in relation to who gets those five Bitcoin because it's really just whoever has the private key for that wallet. Whoever can access it will get it, period. 
And so if you have not lined that up and made sure that you have that and have access to that ready for your son when you pass away, then it doesn't matter what anybody says. They're not going to be able to access it. If they don't have the private key, then no one accesses it. It basically just gets burned. I mean, there's no way to get to it. So it's inaccessible. And so it's as if it was just destroyed and doesn't exist anymore. And that could be a problem. Now, there are many positive aspects to this as well, because you could, in a sense, set up your own strategy for inheritance in which you maybe have a safe deposit box that has your private key in it, or you have a safe at home, or whatever the case may be, you have it stored away somewhere, and then when you pass away, you basically put in your will, your trust, or whatever, that your son gets everything in your safety deposit box. And so when they get that, then they can actually access your funds, either with your private key, or if you have a hardware wallet, or whatever you use to make sure that they can access that. But there's ways of doing that. And if you do that, then your digital wallet may not have to go through probate. It may not have to go through the court system. It may not have to go through all these different processes where it takes time. Sometimes it doesn't get carried out the way that you originally intended. And there can be issues. There's taxes. There's all kinds of stuff. Whereas if you just directly make sure that private key goes to your son, then you don't have to deal with any of that. You pass away, they get it, and that's it. It's very simple. It's very quick. There's no taxes. There's no courts. There's no. There's nothing. It just goes directly to them. So you can definitely use this feature as a pro and something that you can use to your own advantage, but it also can be a very big negative because, you know, obviously if you lose access to your assets and they don't pass along to your heirs, that sucks, and that's not something you want to happen. And so this is something you have to be aware of. Everybody should have this stuff backed up. And I've mentioned that before. I'm going to mention it again here. It is extremely important. If you have any digital assets, any cryptocurrencies, anything like that, make sure that you have all of the requirements for accessing them backed up. Ideally, you have them backed up on a hardware wallet, and basically that's like an encrypted flash drive that basically no one can access because it's not hooked up to the internet. You also have your private keys, and you can store those on a flash drive and then maybe keep them in a safe. Ideally, you do that as well as you print them out so you have a physical copy. And then you make sure that those are stored in a safe, in a safety deposit box, maybe with a trusted family member or friend. Make sure you have at least two different sources to those things. Now, you also want to make sure that those are extremely secure sources. You don't want to just have them in a folder in your desk. You want to make sure that those are in a safe, they're locked up, or it's on an encrypted flash drive, hardware wallet that you have to have a password to access. But then make sure you have that password stored away somewhere that other people may be able to access, but only people that you trust. So that in the event that something may happen to you, someone else can access that. Now, in addition to that, in the event that something gets destroyed, let's say your computer gets destroyed, your house burns down or whatever, well, if all you had was all your information stored at home, you might lose it all. And so that would be very beneficial, definitely, obviously, if you have that backed up somewhere else, like a safety deposit box or with somebody else that you really trust. There are many options for doing this, and this is something that I've brought up in these episodes on blockchain, that 
you have the responsibility. And that is the beauty of blockchain, that you have full control of your assets. But it is also a responsibility. It's very important and it can be risky to you if you are not prepared for these things and you don't have them backed up, you don't have them stored, you don't have a plan, then you're screwing yourself. It's like keeping cash just wadded up under your mattress. Now, in some ways, that is fairly secure, but in other ways, let's say there's a fire, then it's just gone. It's destroyed. And so that's probably not the best place to keep your cash. At the very least, you just keep it in a fireproof safe. So it's still at home, you still control it completely, but it is at least safe from fire and most you know, most things, you know, a thief is not going to be able to break in and just get into your safe very easily. Maybe they can pick the lock, maybe they can't technically, but it is much harder for them to do that than to just pick up your mattress and take all your money. And so you're responsible for it, just like you are with your own cash or any of these other assets you may have. If you have something valuable, you're responsible for keeping that and for making sure that it can pass along and make sure that if something happens to you, it is still secure and those assets can go to who you want them to go to and all these kinds of things. So for another brief example, I have a cousin who basically I got into cryptocurrencies and she bought a few different ones and she had stored those on her phone. And I told her to make sure that you back up your private key. And I'd even offered that if she wanted to back them up on a flash drive or print it out, that I would store them in my safe with my private keys as well so that she could could have them somewhere else in case, you know, something happened, she lost them or whatever the case may be. And she ended up not getting around to it and didn't back them up herself, nor did she, of course, back them up through me. And so she ended up having an issue where her phone got basically destroyed. The screen got destroyed, you couldn't see anything on it, and so she couldn't do anything on her phone. Well, the way she was storing all of her cryptocurrencies was through an app on her phone. And she had a mobile wallet on there that she was storing things through. Now she could no longer access that. Technically, she could have accessed it online, but only if she had a password and that password was stored on her phone. So basically, she lost access to a lot of cryptocurrency and value at the time. It was during a huge run up in price and there was a big spike and if I remember right, it was over you know $1,000 or somewhere around there. It's a significant amount. And all of a sudden, she lost all access to it. Now, luckily, she was able to go somewhere. They were able to put a temporary screen on, or I think they hooked it up separately to a different phone and used it to access her phone. And she was able to get access to it, pull out those private keys and passwords. And then now, hopefully, at least, she has stored that in another location and she has access to those funds and they did not get lost. But it was a very close event where she could have lost access to all of those funds, all of those assets, and she almost did. But again, luckily she didn't. So please, if you have any digital assets, any cryptocurrencies, make sure that you've taken care of these things. This is your responsibility. If you have not done it yet, then as soon as you listen to this, go home and make sure you do it at that point in time immediately. Make sure that you have all this backed up. Make sure that you have a plan. Make sure that you have taken the responsibility that you need to take if you have full control of your assets and your funds. So that wraps up everything that I wanted to go over with the Cardano project. There is a lot more to it. It is something that is very involved. It's very complex. They've got a lot going on. It's still in fairly early stages. But I hope this gives you a feel for the project and how they're approaching things and what the potential may be if you pair this 
with the previous few episodes talking about the potential of blockchain technology and the use of things like smart contracts and tokenization and all of the different things that really benefit from blockchain technology overall and also from the ideologies of decentralization and user control and all this kind of stuff. So hopefully this gives you a good example of what that looks like for a specific project. And for Cardano, this is a specific project that is a platform that plans on doing many different things and is much more than just a cryptocurrency, as you can tell. So that will wrap up this episode and this case study on PIVX and Cardano, which also wraps up this series on blockchain as a whole. If you came in on this episode and haven't listened to the previous series at the very least, if not the entire season, which I would recommend starting with episode one, but the blockchain series in general, I did a start on blockchain technology, then one on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, then one on Ethereum and blockchain platforms, along with many different use cases associated with blockchain technology. Then I wrapped that up with a themes episode, was the previous episode that talked about blockchain ideology, as well as responses by governments and corporations and how individuals are interacting with it, that kind of stuff. And then I have wrapped up this series with this episode, which is the the case study on PIVX and Cardano, some specific examples of a currency and then of a platform. So that hopefully gives you a very broad view and an understanding of what blockchain is, how it works, what the potential is, how these things are being developed, what stage they're at, all this kind of stuff. Hopefully I've relayed that to you very well and understandably. The next episode after this one will be an update episode, a preview episode, as well as some interesting articles I've ran across that are relevant to the upcoming series and touch a little bit on some previous stuff I've talked about. So I'll go over that. I'll introduce what the next series will be on alternative education and different aspects of modern education and what the future looks like, all this kind of stuff. So please come back and listen to that one as I introduce the next series, and hopefully you enjoy that as well. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you specifically to those who have left ratings and reviews. I do have a few of those that are posted on this podcast, and I greatly appreciate that. Uh, thank you for taking the time to click the stars and write a little review. That is very helpful. It really helps people find this podcast and gives them an idea of if it's something they will enjoy and what we talk about and basically gets that from someone other than me because I'm a little bit biased. And so I appreciate that you have done so. I also thank those of you who have emailed me and given me some feedback, asked some questions, uh, told me about some things that you want to hear more about. I greatly appreciate that. That is very helpful, very beneficial to me. It really helps me to know where to go with the podcast and what specific things to maybe gloss over a little more and then what things to highlight and go deeper on. And so thank you for sharing that with me and please continue to do so. Any of you who 
haven't done so yet, and even those that have, you're free to continue to email me, and I'll hear from you, and I'll read your emails, and I'll get back with you, and I really do appreciate that support. It's very encouraging, and it's very helpful, so thank you very much for the emails, the communication. As a reminder, again, please do keep an eye out for the next episode where I talk about Season 2 and ask for your input on that. That is very important feedback, so while I do greatly appreciate the general feedback. I am requesting strongly that you please give me specific feedback on the things I'm asking about for season two. So please look out for that. I've had many new people follow me on Twitter under the name Foundations PC, and I'm not sure if that is organic growth from Twitter and tweeting things and other people retweeting things and all the things that people do on Twitter, or if that is from listeners like you listening to the podcast and then um, following me on Twitter because of that. Either way, thank you. For anybody that has followed me on Twitter, that is also helpful to increase the followers there and be able to get more information out there. Although my information is generally more uh, entertaining and slightly educational, highlighting some aspects of usually government corruption and overstepping and political philosophy and that type of stuff. So if you're interested, if you like funny memes related to the government, then definitely follow me on Twitter. The final thank you would go to our patron. This would be the man who supports this podcast on a monthly basis for $4 a month, basically a dollar an episode. And because of him, I have an extra level of encouragement mostly, and also a small amount to put towards the overall hosting fees and any equipment I have to buy and that kind of stuff. So I greatly appreciate that. Thank you very much to our patron and anybody else that is interested. Please feel free to go to patreon.com slash our foundations and you are welcome to send some support my way. You can make a donation or you can subscribe monthly is the recommended thing. There's some added bonuses there. I put out some extra content. I have some articles that you can read on there that I post and different things like that. So if you're interested, please check that out as well. And I think that's about it. So thank you very much for all your support of all these different types that I've mentioned. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Thank you for all those that will come back for the next one. And with that, I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.